Welcome to Community Worship. We are excited that you are here. We are just going to throw those there. Um, so <laughs> I didn't throw them at anybody. But um, so for those of you who are here, that um, maybe this is your first time in church. Maybe you're um, maybe trying to figure this whole God thing out. Welcome. Um, that's all of us. Some of us might be a few further steps down the path, but we are all on this journey. And, um, and, and so I just want to say welcome. I want to let you know, though, that what we're talking about tonight is kind of what we as uh, Christians would, would call kind of a family discussion. Have you ever been into a friend's home and you walk into the kitchen and you can just like instantly feel like, oh, they're, they're having a talk. Like they're having a, they're having a discussion, right? Have you ever been there? I've been there before. I had a friend in high school that like, you just kind of, you walk in the door, it's like, all right, I'll see y'all later. Right. Um, we're going to have a family discussion tonight and we're really excited that you are here. If you are here and you're kind of just questioning this whole God and kingdom thing, uh, Jesus thing, that's great. We're super excited you're here, but we are going to kind of let you in on a family discussion tonight because what Paul is going to do for us in Romans chapter six here is kind of make a turn. If you, if you've been with us this semester, you have noticed that Paul has been talking about this scandalous, dangerous even, grace that is ours in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let's retract here. So like in chapter one, he tells us that we are all rebels against God's reign. All of us have rebelled against God, right? In chapter two, he goes so far to say, it's not even, even if you have the law or you don't have the law, you're still lost. You're still separated from God. And then in the beginning of chapter three, he says, no one seeks after God. No one does anything good. Every word that is on our lips and on our tongues is a word of rebellion against God. None of us in, in our sin pursue him. And then he makes this turn, if you remember in Romans chapter 3, which is one of the best passages of all time. He says, we have all sinned, but we are justified, which is this churchy word for made right with God, made pure again, made perfect again, made as if we had never sinned before, not because of what we can do, but because of solely, because of the grace, the free gift of God in salvation. He goes on to say in chapter four, if you remember one of my favorite passages, verses four and five, he says, the one who works earns his wages, but the one who does not work and yet trusts in him who saves the ungodly, who justifies the ungodly, not the godly who has it all together, but the ungodly to him, his faith is counted as righteousness, right? Like you work a job, you get paid. And Paul is saying that's not how the gospel works. In the economy of God, that's not how salvation and new life works. He makes this extremely clear in Romans chapter 5. He says, for God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were sinners, not while we were kind of getting our junk together, but while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And then he brings in, if you remember last week, Kevin talked about the whole idea of, of 
Adam and Jesus. And the reason Paul brings this in is even to build up the idea even more that those who are united to Adam, which we all are, we all were, being descendants of our first father, all of us are united to Adam. And it is in that union that we receive condemnation for our sin. We receive our sin nature and we stand condemned because of our union with Adam. And then Paul says, but because of the grace of God, we are now unified to the second Adam, that is Jesus. And it is our unity with him and him alone that causes our salvation. So Paul is just building this huge argument. You and I cannot save ourselves, no matter how hard we try. And this scandalous grace of God that is only on the good grace and love of God the Father for us that any of us taste salvation because all of us deserve death. All of us deserve the wrath of God for our sin. I don't know if you realize that or not, tonight or not, but that is one of the most loving things I can tell you tonight. You're not supposed to call people out on their sin. That is one of the most loving things that anyone could stand before you and say is that you are lost in your sin, but there is hope in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And that comes to us by grace alone. And then what Paul's going to do is he's going to make this turn in chapter 6 about how we live. It's actually chapter 6, 7, and 8. But tonight we're going to make that turn with him and we're going to see how this works out in our life, the, what, what this actually means for our life. You see, 1 through 5 is all about what God has done for us in the gospel. Now chapter 6 through 8 is going to be what God is doing in us through the gospel. And just to drive this whole idea of this scandalous, dangerous grace even more home. Like I've used this illustration before. If my daughter is standing in the middle of a busy highway and I'm standing on the side, I do not stand there on the sidewalk and scream at my three-year-old and say, sweetie, sweetie, if you'll only turn around and walk five steps this way and then run a little bit and then turn left, you can come to me. I'm right here and I'm ready to get you. Just run to me. Just, just, just come here. No, 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 no. You see, the grace in the gospel of Jesus Christ is that I leave the sidewalk and I pick her up and I run her to safety. That is grace. That is salvation tonight. God did not show us the way. He came and he picks us up and he carries us to salvation. When I could not find my own way, he brought me. How amazing is that? So Paul is going to say this at the end of chapter 5, if you'll look. Verse 20 says, Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin increased, or as sin reigned, In death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And he's going to anticipate a question here of this rebuttal, this natural response that most people would have, right? This natural response. You see, 
the problem for you and I tonight that is not necessarily that we don't understand that in some sense we need a savior and that in some sense we don't understand the cross because we do in some way. We, we understand that Jesus died for our sins, even if it's just theoretical. And our problem is not that we don't understand in some way that we're supposed to live this obedient life. Our problem is that we don't, sometimes I feel like we don't understand how these two things work together, Right? So we either, we either have people, and maybe, maybe you're here, we either have people who are so, Jesus paid it all, bro, and I'm good. I'm just going to, I don't really have to be obedient, right? And then we have other people who are like, it's all about what I do, and it's all about my obedience, and we forget the fact that this is, not, this is nothing and earns us nothing without the cross. Does that make sense? We don't understand how these two things go together. I'll give you a great illustration of this. Um, imagine, <clears throat> imagine you are in um, uh, late 19th century America and President Lincoln has just signed the Emancipation Proclamation, okay? Which frees the slaves, freed slaves in America once and for all. So imagine a 60-year-old man who has been in slavery his entire life. Okay? He is used to one way of living, right? He's been in slavery his entire life. And with a stroke of a pen, what happens? He is declared to be what? Free. It, it, probably hundreds of miles away in a little bitty office by a man he's never met before. But he is declared and said, you are free. Do you think he wakes up the next morning and knows exactly what freedom looks like? Can you imagine the mindset when he wakes up the very next morning? He has been declared to be free. Now he must learn how to live like he is free. Can you imagine the anxiety that happens when his former taskmaster comes around again? Can you imagine the turmoil and the anxiety that happens when he returns to his job now for a wage, not by duty, but for delight of taking care of his family? But still, how do we square that thing? So again, he has been declared free. Now he must learn how to live free. You tracking with me? And this is exactly what Paul is telling us. We have been declared justified. Again, big churchy word for you have been made perfect and righteous. This is outside of you. It happened before time began, the word of God tells us. I have declared you righteous. Now we must learn how to become what he has declared us to be. Without this, we question this. But without this, there's no this. You get me? So we, in short, we have to become what we are. And because of this, the rebuttal that Paul is going to anticipate here is that if sin increases, shouldn't I, if, if, if sin abounded, if, if the law came in to, so that grace might increase, why don't I just keep on sinning so that grace might abound even more? He anticipates this question and he says in verse 1, he says, What then shall we say to these things? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it. We don't continue in sin. Why? Because we have died to it. 
We have died to sin. Now, he's not saying that we no longer want to sin. Because we know that the enticements of sin are still present in our life. He's, he also doesn't say that we no longer ought to sin. Like, it's not, it's not a suggestion. He's saying, die to sin. He's also not saying that we slowly kind of move away from sin. Because this verb, used, the, the word he uses here in the Greek means a past moment. It's done. He has died to sin, right? So what does he mean with this? He is saying that we have died to sin, meaning we are no longer under the rule and under the reign and the power of sin. So how did this happen in verse 3? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So how did this happen? How have we come to die to sin? Well, we have... Um, in a real, very real sense, we have died with and in Christ. You see, Paul has just got done talking about in Romans chapter 5, that it's what? Our union with Adam that causes this condemnation, right? That we are condemned as sinners. And just like that, it is our union with Christ that is our salvation. So he uses this, um, this picture that we, we know as baptism, He's not saying that baptism has saved us. He's not saying it is by baptism that you and I have died to sin. He's giving this physical illustration of a spiritual reality within us. Because in baptism, uh, for us, what we say is in the, you're standing there is a confession that I need to be saved. And then in, when you go under the water, it is representative of the fact that you have been reckoned to die with Jesus. And then you rise out of the water, which is symbolic that we now rise in his new life, in his resurrection, so that we might walk in newness of life, right? You hear that. So he uses this physical picture, this outward illustration of a spiritual reality that by grace God has reckoned us, considers us dead in Christ. So by grace, I died on a cross 2,000 years ago is what Paul is saying. We have been reckoned with him because the foundation of our salvation tonight, students, is not that our sins would be forgiven. Uh, The foundation of our salvation is not that we get to spend eternity in heaven. The foundation and linchpin of our salvation is the truth and the reality of our union with Jesus. Because all of God's blessings come through him. And in him, what is true of him now becomes true of you and me. Think about that. I'll say that again. Think about that. What is true of Jesus, this is my son in whom I am well pleased, now becomes true about me, a rebel and sinner. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. He, I am giving all of the kingdom to him. He alone is perfect. He is pure. He is righteous. I'm giving you the kingdom. You are pure. You are righteous. Because everything that is true of him is now true of me 
through this amazing gospel, this grace. So we don't continue in sin because we have died to sin. How did we die to sin? Well, God has reckoned us to, in a very real sense, that we have died in and with Christ. So it's, I no longer live, right? So then what is the result of this? What is the result of our death in the death of Jesus? Look at verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So you see here the process. Christ was crucified by our faith in him. We are united to him and therefore reckoned as having died with him. And as he also rose from the dead, we too look forward to the time we will rise from the dead because it is true of us just like it's true of him. And even here today, we experience the newness of life that comes through his resurrection and our union with him. You tracking? So if that is the case, what happens after that? We actually break the power because dead people no longer sin. The body of sin has been crucified. It's been done away with. There's two implications that we get from this. Number one, it is the death of Christ that causes us to walk in newness of life. We've got to get this straight. It is Christ's death that then leads to our dying to our sin. Just like I said before. Living as a free man doesn't make the former slave free. Being set free makes him live like a free man. Do you understand? The other implication that we can take from this, though, is that the intention of his being set free is that he would actually live as a free man. And some of us, too often, as as followers of Christ, we get, especially in this generation, I was reading an article just yesterday about how our generation, if I can say that, I'm like 10 years older than you, but, you know, indulge me. So our generation has this huge desire to be authentic, right? Right? And real and vulnerable and truthful with one another. And we, we just put all our junk on the table and it's just, you know, we're, we're open to one another. And we confess our sins and, man, it's okay, bro, you're a sinner, I'm a sinner. And we never do anything about it. We scorn the previous generations because they were all about don't drink, don't have sex, don't do this, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that, don't dance, Right? We scorn them and say, well, it's just, you know. And yet, so so they're walking as free men when they might not have understood their freedom. And yet we're standing here reveling in our freedom and never actually living as free people. These two implications are huge for our life. 
So if you're here tonight and you are trying to become free by living free, if you are trying to use the law and understanding your sanctification, this idea that's a big church word again for just becoming holy, becoming more like God, if you are in an attempt to by your sanctification, by doing good things, trying to earn your justification, you've got it backwards and you'll live a life of turmoil and struggle. But the implication that you and I have been justified by the grace of God is that we might walk in freedom and in his new life. Are we walking and living as free men? Free women in Christ. He says in verse 11, So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. I said it's real big theology words and everything else. But the whole idea of sanctification comes after justification. Being made holy comes after our declaration. Okay? We have to understand that. What is objectively true about the former slave, he has been objectively declared to be set free, now must become subjectively true in his life. He must become what he is. So this is how this works. Let's just think about this for a second. It, how then do we live out? We, one, of, one of my gr- favorite authors, he talks about how our sanctification is the unpacking of our justification. Okay, What that means is this. We don't come to Jesus for salvation and then start working on our own. Okay, Every step we make in obedience in the Christian life is an unpacking of what he declares us to be. So if we, if we want and desire to make any headway at all, it is going to be as a response to understanding who we are in Jesus. Does that make sense? It is an unpacking of our justification. Are you tracking with me here? I'm using big words. Yeah, not really. Yeah, okay. Why is this so important? Because we have to become what we are. So I want to give you an example. Let's just kind of work this out. How does this actually work in our life? If I live my life trying not to lie, let's just take that. I live my life trying not to lie in order that I might be declared truthful, I will always fail. But, If in my attempt and desire to be truthful, I look at the author of truth, I look at what I have objectively been declared to be, perfect, righteous on the account of Jesus alone, that works itself out in me in a way that I speak truth. And here's the reason. We lie, why? So we don't get in trouble? We lie to save face because we have to uphold our reputation. But you see, what the gospel tells us is that you and I are both, our reputation is junk, right? We're already outed as sinners. There's no reputation to uphold. 
And there's also no punishment that anybody can give us that is worse than the punishment that we would receive from God for our sin. And that has been removed by the blood of Jesus. Therefore, what are we afraid of? I don't tell the truth in order that I might become this, but when I really understand the gospel and its implications in my life, it works itself out in honesty. Take lust. Why do we lust? Because we want physical intimacy and pleasure. But the gospel tells me what is objectively true of me now is that I have access to the greatest joy, pleasure, and the highest treasure ever known to man. The very person of God himself. And I experience the truest intimacy ever with this person through his spirit who resides in me. This is what has been objectively told to us. So therefore... I turn away from my lust because what I'm after here, I've already been freely given in Christ. Does it make sense? So we put this to death. We no longer need this because we have been given a better hope, a better joy, a better intimacy. I'll give you one more. Patience. I don't know about you, but I'm not a very patient person. What are we after when we're impatient? It's a great, the, the, the best example of this is if you're, in your, you're, you're late for class and you're in your car and you're hitting every stinking red light on Columbiana and Green Springs on your way to campus, right? Or Lakeshore. Lakeshore is the devil. And you're hitting every red light. What do you start doing? What, what is the fruit of that moment? Anger? Anxiety? We see all of this fruit just start to come out of us, right? We're gritting our teeth. We're starting to get really angry. What are you saying in that moment? You may not realize it, but what your heart is saying is that I'm in control of my life and my schedule and they are messing it up. Shame on them. Don't they know that in my little kingdom, I'm never late and they're supposed to do what I want them to do, right? So it works ourselves out in sin. But what does the gospel tell us? That we have a sovereign God who has numbered our days. He knows every moment of our life before we ever live the first one. And he knows every red light that you're going to hit on the way home tonight. And the gospel also says that he works all things for the good of those who love Christ and who, who are called according to his purpose. So Maybe that red light is for your good. Not maybe, it is. So, do you see the impatience start to, not not because I'm fighting to be more patient, be more patient, be more patient. No, no, no. When I unpack the gospel, when I unpack the truth of who he is and what he's done for me, I naturally become more patient. Do you see that? Sanctification, becoming something, is the product of knowing something. Knowing who we are. What is declared for us, we now walk in it. What is declared is that we have died 
to sin. We no longer sin. The person who is dead, they no longer sin. You have died with Christ if you have put your faith in him. How did this happen? Because by faith you have been united with him in in his death. And the result of that is that we would pursue holiness. And this pursuit, this gospel of grace has stolen the power of sin that it once had over us, which is exactly what he says in verses 12 and through 14. He says, look, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. We are free to resist the good reign of God. Before Christ, completely slave. Completely slave to our former taskmaster. But as soon as the grace of God is spoken to us and we are declared righteous according to his unmerited favor alone, what happens? We now are free and we've got to learn how to live like that. But now we can resist. This is the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So he says, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law, but under grace. We are freed from the rule and reign of sin. Therefore, we walk as free people. We are free to resist. And though sin still rages war within us, hear me. We will never be done with this battle until the final day. But we know we are victorious. So we keep fighting. And just like this former slave, he doesn't return to his former taskmaster. He doesn't present himself as an instrument for slavery anymore. Why? Because he's been declared free. Now he must learn how to live it. So he presents himself as an instrument of freedom. Become what you are. Are tonight. We fight sin, not in order that we might become, but because we are through grace, through faith in Him alone. We don't continue in sin because we truly understand who we are. Paul says like this in Galatians 2.20, For I have been crucified with Christ. It is, I, it is not I who live, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So just quick, three quick things and then we'll, we'll be done. Number one, grace is not a license to live however you want. If what I do does not, remember Paul's, anticipating the question. If what I do does not earn my salvation, then what does it matter what I do? I can do whatever I want. 
He's anticipating that and he's saying, no, don't you understand that if you have truly tasted and seen the salvation of God, the free grace of God and his massive love for you in his son, then you have died to that way of life and you will walk in newness of life. Grace is not a license to live however we want. The funny thing is that this isn't a lack of law. This is actually a lack of gospel in our lives. For the person who says, now I can live however I want, it's not that they don't understand the law good enough. They actually don't understand the gospel well enough. So if that's you here tonight, my prayer is that the Holy Spirit would give us eyes to see the height and the depth and the width of the grace and love of Jesus. Because when you and I were sinners, Christ died for you because you could not save yourself. Second thing I'll say is that don't base your justification, your being set free upon your sanctification. I'm guessing there's probably someone in the room like me who looks at the work of the gospel in me and says, it's there, I must be good. Or it's not there, I must not be good. Now it's true that, salva- that, that fruit, sanctification, if I can use these, these big words again, it's true that sanctification is fruit that I have been set free, right? Walking as a free man is is fruit of being set free. However, if I look only at that and I base my freedom on that, it will fail me. Let me put it to you like this. I have a daughter. She's four, as most of you know. She's adopted. There are certain fruits of Grayson's adoption. Okay? She has my name. She sleeps in my house. She says, yes, sir, and she obeys my law in my little little kingdom of Sherbrooke Drive right? What happens when she gets married and takes another name? What happens when she moves out of my house into college? And what happens when she becomes her own person and she no longer has to do certain things that I ask her to do because she's no longer in my house? If she bases the fruit of her adoption, if she, or if she bases the reality of her adoption on the fruit of her adoption, what happens when that fruit staggers? What happens she will begin to question the reality of her adoption. Are you tracking with me? But if she bases the reality of her adoption on the fact that she has been declared and made mine once and for all, now she's free to live like that, to experience the fruit of that. But it is so dangerous when we look inside of ourselves and say, man, I'm really struggling with lust today. I'm really struggling with telling the truth today. I'm really struggling with patience today. I must not be saved. And it's in this moment, again, just like person number one here, we too need to return to the gospel that says you have not saved yourself. It is not the fruit of the Christian walk that saves you. It is the root, and that root is the gracious, sovereign love of God. And number three, last thing, we know that we have truly started to understand this gospel of grace when we begin to see the law of God as our delight and not our duty. 
You'll know you're starting to grow in the grace of God when you want to obey the commands of Jesus. Not in order that you might become something, but because he has freely made you something. So tonight, may we become what we are. And if you're here and you're not sure if you are a son, a daughter of God by his grace, we're going to have a moment here where we want you to just walk in the back, go talk to Kevin before you leave tonight. Talk to someone. Talk to me, Rachel, or Kevin, someone. If the Lord is beginning to open your eyes to the reality that you cannot save yourself, but he so loves you that he has made a way for you, we want to help you with that. And we're going to wrap up tonight with communion. In communion, just like we need to return to the gospel to hear afresh who we are, to hear the declaration that I have forgiven your sin and I have set you free. We return to the table of Christ to hear that proclamation and to participate again in the death of Christ. We are united with him in death. And this is symbolic. And we do it over and over again to remember that we have been united. We are crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live. It is Christ who lives in us. So I'm going to pray. And then Chase and Kevin are going to come and, and, and lead us through this moment. Father God, we thank you that you have declared us to be righteous, not because of anything that we've done, but only because of who you are. God, we thank you that when we could not fix ourselves, you sent your son to live a perfect life in our place. And God, the reality and the truth that we can do nothing, that we add nothing to our salvation is so scary for us because we want to be in control. But God, if, if there's a student, if, if we are here tonight and we are sensing that fear, then oh my, Lord, may that be the beginning of the fear of the Lord and the beginning of salvation and opening our eyes to see who we are. Holy Spirit, would you lead us in this moment? Would you proclaim to us anew the death of Jesus Christ for us? And may we participate in his death in a symbolic way in this moment to remind ourselves that we've been set free. And then as we walk out these doors tonight, would you help us to live out, to become what we are, sons and daughters of the Most High God, by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ. We love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your blessings. But there is nothing we celebrate more than the name of Jesus. 